Have you or anyone you know ever been emotionally destroyed by a book? Have you ever got the feels for a fictional character? Have you ever been hung over by an all-night book binge? Then pull up a seat, pour yourself a glass, and hang on to your Kindle. This is Drinking Ink. Hey friends, Brittany here. Before we jump into the episode, I just wanted to drop in with a note on our content. While books are for everyone, this podcast was created for adult audiences only. We advise listener and reader discretion as we will likely delve into difficult and sometimes triggering content often seen in literature such as graphic depictions of violence, frank portrayals of sexuality, discussion of mental illness, and existential struggle. And on occasion, some downright filthy language. It might be a lot to take in, so if you need a breather, take a break, or come back later. We'll be here for you. And we're back with another episode of Drinking Ink. How are we doing today, ladies? Pretty good. How are you doing, Britt? I am good. I'm always good. Mm -hmm. I'm really excited today because I have been wanting to talk to this author for a very long time about her debut novel that is coming out next week on March 28th. Uh, it's called Obsidian Feathers, and it is written by the wonderful Nemi Caceres, uh, who is coming on to talk to us today about her process, the beautiful dark romance setting that she built, and uh, I'm really curious to get some of her opinions on the cultural diversity in her book. So, Nemi, tell us a little bit about Hi. yourself, for those who don't know. Sure. Hi, uh, I'm Nemi Caceres. Um, I am an El Salvadorian indigenous woman. I write dark fantasy romance. Um, we'll talk more about Obsidian Feathers, but I grew up in San Francisco in California. Um, and yeah, we kind of know everything just from like that intro, (laughs) like everything pretty much. Awesome. So... (sighs) I know you specifically from the TikTok discourse mm-hmm. sphere of things, specifically as it pertains to book talk. Mm-hmm. I did not know that you were a writer until kind of getting to know you through TikTok a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Have you always wanted to write? Was it something that you always wanted to do? Or was it something that kind of just the urge came one day? So a little bit of both. Um, so I have been scribbling in notebooks and starting writing books and never finishing them since I was, I don't know. Well, my dad says that he, the earliest one, earliest notebook that he has, because my dad is freaking adorable and he has literally every notebook I've ever scribbled in and it's precious. And now that I've uh, actually published my book, uh, he's actually going to be putting a copy of the book in like a little China hutch. He's precious. Did I mention this? He's precious. In a China hutch with all of the notebooks, with his favorite line highlighted. My dad is precious. My dad is. Precious. Oh my god! I we love, love that. Dad. He is Aww. amazing. Um, so he says that the earliest one that he has is second grade. So second grade, about since I've been wanting to write books. Um, but like, I come from a very ambitious family, whose whole like focus is you can do what you love but you need to make money and you need to make sure that you're taking care of yourself so I've always kind of been consciously aware of the fact that being an author necessarily is not going to pay the bills so I got into tech instead and up until 
February 11th, it's so funny, I can tell you the birth date of my book, uh, February 11th of 2022, I didn't even consider writing at all. I, I've always been a reader. I just didn't consider it. And then I, I answered a Facebook post, a Facebook writing prompt, and just wrote two paragraphs and hit send and closed my computer and went to sleep and uh, woke up the next day and had over 5,000 likes and like a hundred DMs like going, I need this book now, gimme. And I was like, well, looks like I'm writing a book. And uh, my best friend and I sat down for about two weeks and workshopped everything and built the like everything that was going to go into the book. And it went from being one book to four books and two novellas. Wow. Do you remember what the prompt was? I, I actually have a screenshot of the prompt and my answer. I it was, uh, off the top of my head, it was um, 10 years ago, they had a playground marriage and his culture took takes it seriously. She thought nothing of it. Now he's back to claim his bride. Oh, that doesn't sound at all familiar. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like the book, like the book has, has that same core running through the entire thing, but much more expanded, much more meat, much more uh, bones to it. Did you always intend to go the indie route or did you consider maybe traditionally publishing or... Was it always intended that this is going to be sort of a dark romance pursuit? So, uh, things that your your listeners might not know about me, but I am incredibly stubborn and incredibly hard-headed. And once I've decided this is going to be how something is, I don't really compromise very well. So I always, like, as soon as I knew I was going to be writing this, I'm like, well, I am going to be writing a BIPOC story. I'm going to be bi writing a BIPOC dark romance story. And I am not going to tolerate anyone telling me what can and cannot be in this. So traditional publishing, that's, that's automatically out. Because the minute that somebody said, well, we can't have them doing this, this, and this, I'd be like, well, you can't have me then. Goodbye. And I, that just doesn't really work with contracts. But yes, I always did know it was going to be a dark romance because like dark romance is my favorite genre. So my two favorite genres to read are dark romance and fantasy romance. So like, of course it was going to be both of those because like, that's my favorite. Of course. <laughs> I'm a big fantasy romance. I've just started getting into the dark romance stream and um, I'm finding I'm enjoying it a lot more than I thought I would. <laughs> you know, it wasn't something that I had on my bingo card of uh, genres that I would find myself interested in, especially I mean, I definitely grew up a fantasy reader, like Robert Jordan, uh, Stephen Erickson, mostly cis-head white men. Um, but as I got older, I found myself leaning more in towards that, um, the fantasy, female-written fantasy. And yeah, uh, book talk is just kind of, for me, threw the doors wide open and was like, wait, there's what I can read and I can read this and there's what and this is a thing? <gasps> so, yeah, lots of different. It slaps different when it's written by a woman. So I'm curious as someone who's, because I'm newer into like the whole monster monster realm, mm -hmm. like stories. Um, did you always like? Was it always intended to be within that kind of realm, or 
did you did you kind so, of end up falling down that rabbit hole without realizing it? So yes, um, so El Cadejo, which is uh, the cryptid that birthed the monsters in this book, uh, is something that is very much real to the people of Chinameca, which is where my family is from, which is where I set the book in. Um, like I literally, ever since my, my grandfather, uh, learned that I was writing this book, I literally get a call from him like once every two weeks. Hey, I saw El Cadejo last night. Oh, okay, dad. <laughs> okay, grandpa. Sure. Sure you did. So I always knew that I was going to take a Central American monster or a Central American myth or legend and expand it out. It just happened to be that it felt more natural to bring out Carejo because I grew up on, on stories of him. I, you know, my grandfather and my, my father have been telling me stories of, of El Carejo since I was a baby. So it just seemed natural to bring that into the world. Awesome. I love it. It, it was, I, I found it such a beautiful story. Like the setting is so stunning. Like the way you've described it was like the book itself is such a really rich cultural history within the characters and the storyline. Did you, was this a process of you reconnecting with your culture and your heritage? Did you, had, how did you find that going as you're trying to write a book while also reconnecting with your roots? So I had actually started my reconnecting journey about a year before I started writing this. So a lot of that obsessive levels of research and a lot of the, the connections were already there when I started writing it. So it just felt natural to start folding some of those things in. Um, I also did a lot of interviews with my family. Um, I did interviews with family friends and I did interviews with my, my clan members to kind of get more because you only, you know, you can only get so much information from history books and especially from El Salvador where, you know, things have been very corrupt up until, and things are still kind of corrupt up until like the last five to 10 years where things started going a little bit less corrupt. Um, and it always kind of favored the United States because of the way things were. Um, so I inter did a lot of interviews to find out more about things that actually happened on the ground versus the high up uh, elevated view from historians and, and news articles and things like that. But I'd find a topic that seemed particularly interesting to me and I'd write notes on it. Um, and there are even some things that just happened to be born into this big, huge thing from just a single line of something that I picked up that I saw and I was like, oh, that's really cool. Um, for instance, the, uh, the war, uh, the war ritual and the way that that is built was actually built off of a single sentence out of the Codex Borgia, um, which documents a lot of the Aztec world, but it talks specifically about the specific line was specifically out of, um, a discussion about the war of the roses or not the war of the roses, the war of the flowers. Interesting. <clears throat> Because that's a name that Sal uses for Sochit uh, often in, in the prose is that he calls her his flower, mm -hmm. uh, which I found very sweet. And the girls know I'm not one for pet names. Like, I don't <laughs> like the, you know, baby, sweetheart, you know, like princess. But she hates it. 
I, it's, it's like, I, but I found that the way that Sal talks to Sochit, specifically his reverence for her and his, his, um, his desire and love for her, the use of his pet names was never, like, it never felt like disingenuine, you know, it felt like it was very sincere and, and intentional, which I really appreciated. Sal is absolutely 100%, 1,000% full-on obsessed with her. So, like, she can do no wrong. <laughs> like, nothing. Nothing she does. But, yeah, he calls her Nayeli, which means princess. Sorry. Uh, he does call her princess. I read the um, lexicon. My flower. Yeah, and the reason he calls her my flower is not only a reference to the flower wars, but also a reference to what her name means. Her name, Sochit, is actually a really, really old word that predates the Aztec Empire, um, and it means flower, specifically Campasuchin flower, which is the marigold flowers that you see on the cover. Which that cover, by the way, is <laughs> stunning. It is I, breathtaking. Yeah, I was so sad that the Kindle version that we had got was before you had done your cover <laughs> release. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, and even, I mean, I'm, it's almost okay because Kindle doesn't have the color covers. Like my Kindle doesn't have a color cover. So it's, I'm like, it's okay. I can appreciate it on my phone from like Instagram and stuff, but like the, it wouldn't have been, it, it wouldn't have been as beautiful, I guess, in black and white on my phone uh, or on the Kindle, but oh my gosh, that cover is stunning. Yeah. Like, it, it, I was, oh, oh. I was really lucky. Um, oh my goodness! That, so oh, hold on, let me let me get the other version that doesn't have a bar on it. Uh, I was really lucky. Um, the artist is actually the exact same artist that did um, Natalia Hernandez's cover. Mm. And just, just stunning. The artist is just phenomenal. Yeah, I, and now that you mentioned that, um, I can see the. I have the name bearer at home and I'm really excited to, to read that. It's, it's one of the ones that's on my, my ever expanding list, but uh, the, you can see the parallels in the, in the style of art, but Oh, there, the contrast of the colors was just something that I found. So like, mm, it hits, it, it's, it's so impactful in with the golds and the blacks. And I also love that. So Chit takes center focus. I don't typically love characters on my covers, but she is so beautifully drawn and it's very clear. And this is one thing that I love as, as a plus size girl who loves to read about plus size girls is that she is, it's, there is no mistaking her heritage. Mm -hmm. There's no mistaking her size and there's no mistaking who she is. Yeah. And it's, it's stunning. Um, I actually designed the cover. So everything that is on that, uh, I actually designed it. Um, so I'm gl really glad that it was as impactful as I wanted to, because there was many times where I was like, am I overthinking this? Am I overthinking the way these things are being placed? Um, but yeah, no, I was really, I'm really lucky that artist, I told, I sent him like full descriptions of her from the book. Um, and I, I had, um, some art breeder pictures that I had created to kind of give him an idea and I said, I need her to be unmistakably brown, and I need her to be unmistakably fat. And there's no, there's no getting around that. Um, and I was very clear with him from the start that there was no room for her to be thinned or whitewashed. None, no room at all. 
Um, and they're actually the second cover artist that I got. The first one that I got um, didn't seem to quite catch what I was putting down and sent me a cover that was was not was not the business. So I was really lucky that on the second try, the rebound, I got this cover artist and it was just, it was a lovely experience to work with them. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And I think kind of what I, I really love about it is, you know, you, the story itself doesn't shy away from dark themes. It's dark romance. We, we know that. Um, but you have a list in the front of the different trigger warnings, which I think for us was really great because uh, Mia, you are, were, it, it helps you decide that maybe this wasn't a book that you were able to read specifically due to the trigger warnings. Um, <laughs> what was, what was the process like for you trying to decide what to include, what to leave out? Um, and additionally adding in that kind of like, don't try this at home kids, which I also <laughs> thought was great. I ended up actually removing that. Uh, simply because it was like, you have a limit on pages when it comes to Amazon. So that, that don't try this at home is now on, on my website instead. Um, so with the, the trigger warnings, I went through, so first off I wrote the book. I didn't even bother thinking about like crafting the book around trigger warnings or anything like that. But as I was writing and as I was proofreading it before I sent it to betas, I would go down, go down and think, what if, if I had trauma, if I had some trauma, what, 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 what am I encountering in this book? That would be something that I would not be able to read. And how many times does it happen on the page? If, if it's something that like, I don't know. Um, trying to think of, of something that was not actually documented that might have been triggering because it was pretty much like everything. Like even though there was like maybe three lines of dialogue about needle-based drug use, uh, it got a trigger warning because I know when it comes to trauma, when it comes to uh, being somebody who's either had needle-based drug use in their past or someone who has encountered that as a bystander, it's incredibly triggering to, to walk into something like that. Even though it might be three sentences, it'll still trigger something really deeply. And I was very cognizant of, you know, is it something small or is it something that is going to have a real impact on them and harm them in ways that I'm not intending for them to be harmed? Um, and those are really how I crafted it. And from there, the actual formatting, um, I did a lot of studying on how individuals who have neurodivergence actually in process uh, information. And since my main character has ADHD and generalized anxiety, it was I was really cognizant of making sure that that trigger warning was approachable to individuals who have neurodivergence and would be able to look at this and immediately go, okay, this is information that I can fully take in and fully think about without being overwhelmed by it, even though it's a huge list. It's broken into sections that you can fully take in without being overwhelmed by them. Which I completely appreciate being someone who's part of that neurodivergent community, being that I have ADHD and I have Thanks. a whole a few other things. Like, when I saw that, I'm just like, 
I appreciate this so much because it's like I could read it and my mind wasn't automatically like, oh, like, oh, like wasn't completely overwhelmed because like you're saying, it's very easy to read something and when there's a lot of it, or my brain usually will go towards like, holy crap, that's a lot of information, like, whoa. Um, yeah. No, but it was the way it was framed was like, okay, th- this is like, it's chunked, which most people don't realize is but when you have a neurodivergent brain, chunking things is like one of the best possible things you can do because your brain takes the information in differently because there's a bit of space between everything. So it doesn't look at it like there's a whole big list of all these things. Rather, it's, okay, there's sections of, like, it's amazing how it just changes things completely. So I very much appreciated that. I'm glad because that was, that was exactly, that, that reaction is the exact reaction I wanted. I wanted people who are neurodivergent like myself as well uh, to be able to go, okay, here's the information that I need. It's not overwhelming. I don't feel attacked mm-hmm. by it. And exactly. now I can make a conscious decision outside of the panic of being overwhelmed by the information. Right? There's, you have a little bit more, like, freedom to mm-hmm. feel informed about everything. Yep. I also really liked how you broke the categories that you broke it into. So there was, like, the one category that was, like, real content warnings from, a, like, these are things that could be significantly triggering down to, like, tropes. Like, mm-hmm. you really kind of went in super de- depth in in defining what i mean and some people say that there's content warnings like some people call a a content warning a a shopping list when Mm -hmm. they're when they're reading a book and it i don't i don't say this to to sound negative but it read almost a little bit like a shopping list but in a way that's like okay yeah 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 oh but i like this and i like this and yep okay uh uh-huh i can handle this this is good like it was as someone who's not neurodivergent I, i mean it was it was nice. And I've seen content warnings done in different ways where it's just kind of like, but this just felt, it felt really personal. Yeah. And, and that was because I spent so much time on it. And yes, while the reason why I spent time on it was because I wanted people who are neurodivergent to be able to approach it and make that conscious decision and make that uh, conscientious consent to the topics. I also wanted to make sure that individuals who are also like me, who are just shoppers, just give me, just tell me what's in it and I'm good. Uh, I don't have any, any triggers. I, although I have found now I have one trigger, um, one piece of content that I'm just like, "Mm -mm, no, thank you. Um, but yeah, a shoppers like we'll go in and now like if I saw my same formatting in another author's book, I could go in and just go straight to the romance section and be like, I'm in, <laughs> I'm all the way in because I don't need to, I, you know, I don't have any other triggers. So I don't need to look at the social. I don't need to look at the general. I don't need to look at the tropes, but now I can shop directly off of your romance list and I'm done. I'm in, I'm all the way in. You sound a lot like Becca in your tastes. <laughs> Becca's our dark romance girl. She, <laughs> she's the girl that is, you want dark romance Rex. She's, she's read so many. <laughs> <laughs> Like it's insane. She's the one that's gotten us kind of. She's she's the one that's been kind of pushing us into the deep end of the pool a little bit by little bit. Oh oh yeah, she's like she's like you'll like this. Come on, and random snippets or sometimes it's things that we didn't need to know, and you're just like, I feel violated, but okay, I'm gonna continue on <laughs> right now. It. In a good way. Yeah. Violated in the best way. It's like, well, you've just awakened the kink I didn't know I had. Thanks, Becca. It's like, thank you for that. Like, I really needed something else to, like, take over my life at this point in books. Like, great. Oh. 
another thing I found really interesting about your book that, I mean, I've seen done differently in other things is you had a lexicon and not like a pronunciation guide. Mm -hmm. And I found that was a super awesome because you use a lot of the native language of El Salvador and the other Latin countries that are in and around it to support the story. But it also really also helps you immerse yourself more into the the world and the setting that you're building as an author. Can you tell us a little bit more about the process and like why you chose to go that way, how you decided to group them out and, and what uh, sort of impact it had on the usage of the language that you decided to employ in the story and not? Sure. Um, so that is a very complex answer, actually. Um, there, the easiest way is the reason why I didn't do a pronunciation guide is because it is so hard to say uh, say to somebody that does not necessarily speak an indigenous language um, how to pronounce some of these words because it it has to do with the way your mouth moves and the actual structures and the actual uh, shapes that your mouth makes and it's not necessarily something that most non-indigenous language speakers especially non um America's uh, indigenous language speakers know how to do. So I could, I could write out all the flippity E's and the, all the weird things. And you'd look at it and go, yep, that's a thing. I have no clue how to do it with my face, but that's a thing. Uh, so what I'm doing instead, and let me see if I can find one, is when you actually buy the book from my website, you will actually get a bookmark with the lexicon on the back. But if you scan this QR code, you'll actually get a verbal pronunciation guide. Um, I actually worked with a doctor of, of Nahuatl, uh, who is also my teacher, to create a verbal pronunciation guide that you can access if you purchase the book directly from me. That is amazing. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> Because, like, not amazing I'm for my wallet because my husband's going to make me say, what are you spending more money on? But that is amazing. Incredible. So, um, and actually the way, the reason why I structured the lexicon that way is because one of the things that is sort of inherent in the way that the indigenous population of Central America interacted with each other is that they were incredibly mobile. Despite the fact that, the, you know, this huge, long giant piece of landmass. They were incredibly mobile. So you have uh, people from, you know, all the way up to into New Mexico and people all the way down in Nicaragua interacting because they were incredibly mobile and they loved to roam and they loved to move around. So you have situations like even in El Salvador where you have um, Quechimaya, which comes from the highlands of New of Mexico over in Campeche, um, over by, ooh, let's, where is it actually by? That, over by Cancun, um, over in that area. I have a map of Mexico right behind me here. Um, uh, Quechimaya comes from the highlands of Mexico where it meets Guatemala. Um, and then there is Lenca, which is native to um, southeast um Salvador, which is my tribe, and then there's Nahuatl, um, and Nahuatl comes from the Central Mexico Valley, and those are the three dominant languages in that area. So almost all languages that are indigenous to that area have some sort of root 
from one of those three. And I used them interchangeably to kind of show that even though this takes place in El Salvador, and even though the, the area they're in would have been like a territory, uh, they're incredibly mobile people. And they intermixed often, and their languages reflect that. Yeah, I thought that that was such a beautiful thing to see. And it really did enhance the experience as a reader being able to like, Oh, hold on. What does that mean again? And then like, I, it puts the, um, the, the sentence or the, 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 the setting into more context that mm-hmm. you sometimes don't get with the English language. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find um, that there are certain words in other languages. Like there are things you can say in what I'm sorry, Lincoln or Nahuatl that's, that you can't say the same, like there, there isn't a way to say it in English. Right. And so it adds that level of depth and meaning to something that you can't just get out of plain old English. Yes. Um, a, a good example is actually one of my favorite phrases from the book, uh, which is, and I can never remember it because I'm learning all sorts. Uh, Amalnika in Etale Tewat. It means, Literally translated, it means there is no me without you, but the non-literal translation is I love you. But, like, there is no me without you? Mm. (laughs) Right? Like, the depth, the power. Well, and that was some... Sorry, go ahead, Mia. The feels that that gives me. Right. It, it just emphasizes the toucher or die, you know, mm-hmm. like, uh, mm. and that was something that I found super interesting, the dynamic between Sochit and Sal, um, like, what was the inspiration behind their relationship? Because I was getting faded mated vibes, but you also really pushed the element of choice and autonomy, specifically from Sochit, her needing to have that, mm-hmm. um, and Sal being really reluctant to, to give that over. <laughs> <laughs> and I just I was curious about where that came from. So a little bit of my real life and a little bit of the fact that I've never really liked the the removal of consent from faded mates. Like that has always kind of bothered me like okay, so they're fated to be together and that's just that. Like where is the tension? Where is the pining? Where is the groveling? Where is the the all the building blocks that make love so much fun in reality like where is that you have you just say oh they're faded mates and suddenly it's supposed to be this unspoken thing where everybody just knows it's supposed to be a beautiful romance and that's cool but I don't like that not only that okay but what if I don't like my faded mate what if he's a jerk what if he's a piece of shit what if he's Sal (laughs) yeah I was gonna say what if he's Sal and like despite the fact that Sal very much has a lot of really good redeeming qualities he is also an incredibly complex and incredibly flawed person and then you have Sochit who is also incredibly flawed incredibly complex and has all the burdens of the fear of her actual life outside of the world that she's now in all of that colliding and he wants her to just submit and do her thing. And she's like, but sir, are you insane? What do you know? This is not how this is going to go down. 
I felt like she reacted the way that most people expect a character to react when they're put into a situation um, where for for them, they're like in the story. Spoilers, very maybe yeah, brief spoilers is there is a, an established relationship between Sal and Sochi that goes back many, many years mm-hmm. to that playground. And he's just like, this is the way it is. Mm-hmm. Like, we're it. We're together. And she's like, I'm sorry. Are you, did you hit your head? <laughs> Am, did I, did I walk onto the set of a movie? Like, like what? this is insanity. <laughs> and I feel like that's how normal people would react, which I really, I was like. <laughs> it's yes. that realism in there. Cause most people yeah. would not, they'd just be like, they would grapple with it and be like, they'd be like, but, but, huh? like what? Like, how can this be? And then. Though, like, okay, eventually they'll just give into it. But, yeah, it's it's a reality of, like, excuse me, yeah. sir, what what is wrong with you? Like, yes. are, are you on something? Like, yeah. Yeah, and she's she's very sure for a very long time that he is on something. <laughs> like, for, for a good half, maybe more of the book, she's just like, you guys are crazy. You guys are, like, certifiable. What, exactly, what have I gotten myself into? Yeah. And how do I leave? Do I want to leave? Because mm-hmm. that's the other thing that I thought was really interesting was the arc of growth that mm-hmm. Chit experiences throughout the novel <clears throat> in where she comes from and her relationship with her mother, which mm-hmm. is very, very unhealthy uh, in the very beginning of the novel to where it ends, where we're not going to talk about how it ends because <laughs> it is wild um but to where she ends up at the end of the book it is very different she's in two very different places Mm -hmm. and i liked that she fought sal the whole way every every inch like every last inch she didn't struggle like well she i don't want to say she didn't struggle um you know, as Mia was saying, you know, you have this faded maid idea where they're like, I don't want to be a faded maid. No, no, no. Oh, oh, but he is kind of attractive. <laughs> <laughs> and there is um, some of that where she's just like, I mean, the dick is real good. <laughs> yeah. You know, but it's not that like, oh, one, one, you know, smoldering look and it's like, oh, all my defenses are down. Okay, I'll buy it. You There's know, really, really, yeah, yeah, she really does kind of like, Digger heels in which you don't see often in yeah. romance at all and i yeah. really really appreciated that and and my favorite part is also sal's reaction to that is oh yeah that just makes him hotter for her he's like oh you're you're gonna fight me my girl's got claws i'm in i'm all the way in well it's this whole theme of like running and chasing and uh, there, there is a moment at the ba- at the end, towards the end of the book, where that's discussed, and I just I found myself like going, oh, like the whole time the the theme of running away and being chased, and it was like he's a guy that like loves the act of chasing, yep, and to not get his prey. I loved seeing that, like, kind of, like, frustration and him kind of being like, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> It builds. <laughs> it builds. It definitely builds in him. And 
it definitely drives him insane and she kind of likes that she definitely likes playing with his fire on that and she's she's such an interesting character in that for me like she's she's kind of like your all-american girl and she gets thrust into this mystical world just like the reader is kind of as experiencing things as it happens did you find it difficult because it was so the the cultural history of the the background and the story is so rich and is very unfamiliar to a lot of readers did you struggle to kind of explain those cultural world building bits in a way that didn't feel like you were kind of like dumping a history manual at them Look, I still think I felt, I still feel like I dumped a history manual on you guys. Um, Like, I, there are still parts where I'm just like, I mean, if you guys say so, I mean, there's a lot of history here, like, a lot of history, a lot of culture here, and, I mean, you guys seem to be okay with it, so we're just gonna roll with that. I know. Um, What I did was, I, after I figured out where the direction of the books were going, I decided, like, how much was necessary um how much in the first book is going to be necessary to get to the second book how much is going to be necessary in the second book to get to the third book and how much is going to be necessary to get to the fourth book and i knew that i was going to have to dribble it like dribble drabbles and build on it um only because like there is so much it's basically you know two massive empires one of which has last estimated almost 10,000 years of history, which is the Mayan Empire. Um, And then you have the Aztec Empire, which has a deep, huge impact in in Central America. Um, And while their empire was only three to 400 years old by the time it collapsed, uh, it still had a massive impact on, on Mesoamerica. So these huge, massive, uh, just juggernauts of culture coming together and needing to understand that for the most part, while other fantasy novels might have the short, the ability to have that shorthand of this is the the fan, the overall fantasy setting of, if I say, imagine a fantasy village, you know exactly what I'm saying. I don't have that ability. So I have to describe what it's going to look like. Um, and I, I left a lot of time and space for those descriptions which could have been trimmed down, but until you have that foundation, you don't have the ability to just shorthand that out. So it was, it was a balancing act between figuring out what exact pieces of culture you'd need to build the world first off, to make it feel three-dimensional and to what would you need as a reader to get to the next book and walk into the next book and go, what the hell, what the hell is going on? What is this again? Exactly. What is what is going on? Who is this? What? I mean, I personally no. love um, history, like, in general. Mm-hmm. I randomly have, like, just a bunch of, like, random nonsense to do with history up in my brain. <laughs> That's besides the point. But, so, I mean, I think there's, it's necessary to have history, especially in, like, any type of fantasy or, like, I guess, like, there's going to be, like, more, like, historical aspects to this mm-hmm. book so i think it's necessary to have yeah it's it's needed in in mm-hmm. your book to be able to set the story because i think it would take away from the meaning behind it yeah. um 
So I think if it's worth reading, a person will, will is able to determine that when, even with the history that's added in there, it's mm-hmm. like, a, yeah. Um, and that's one of, like, for me, uh, a good example is El Mazote. Uh, El Mazote was a massive thing in El Salvador. Um, I grew up with it very much in my personal zeitgeist, in my, my just general life. Um, but I understand that that shorthand isn't necessarily something that someone who is not from Central America would really understand. Now you go to even somebody who's not from El Salvador, you go to someone who's from Honduras or from Guatemala and say, yeah, uh, I'm thinking about writing a book about El Mazote. They don't need any additional context because they understand because it was such a huge thing um, that they understand that. However, I wanted to bring that into the general zeitgeist of individuals who are not from Central America. So this book was very much written not just for as a love letter to people from Central America, but also as a way of saying, hey, Americans, Canadians, people who are not from Central America, this is your introduction to the world. This is your introduction to things that event, some some events that were impactful in Central America. Um, that's why the reason why Sal is even in the United States to meet Sochit is because of El Mazote. Well, and that's something that I again I found super interesting. Like there, you mentioned there there is the discussion of deportation. Mm-hmm. Um, there is the discussion of loss of culture mm-hmm. and, um, you know, so specifically in the very beginning where Sal and Sochit are having their, their playground moment, you know, I remember clearly Sochit was saying like, oh my, you're not even using, saying my name right. Like, you know, it's, that's not how you say my name is Sochitl. And he's like, mm, no, <laughs> actually, no, it's kind of an ugly name. No, this is like, you know, this is, you know, so there's even that, that discussion of, the the difference of an American raised in America with a cultural background versus someone who's from El Salvador. Mm-hmm. And that, and I think another thing that I found super interesting, and I know Becca found this piece interesting as well, we were kind of talking about it, was this is a BIPOC story, and oftentimes there's this pressure that's put on um, immigrants who come to places like Canada and the United States to disassociate themselves from the culture that they were raised in and mm-hmm. to assimilate and to become, assimilation is incredibly powerful become white and that i felt was so interestingly represented through uh annette uh Sochit's mother and i was wondering if you wanted to kind of expand on that a little bit and where that inspiration maybe came from sure um so forced assimilation is something that has been a plague on the Latine community since they started immigrating to the U.S., really. Um, And it's something that has definitely impacted my family to the point where my family didn't even... My generation, I'm second-generation American, uh, my family, my, my generation wasn't even allowed to learn Spanish because we were they were so concerned and it especially happened the most in California from what I understand talking to other Latin people is in California, it was very much, if you spoke Spanish, 
you would be held back, you would be abused by teachers, and it would be very much a negative in your life growing up in school. So my father didn't even allow me to learn Spanish. My cousins, everybody who was around my age, we weren't even, even allowed to learn Spanish. Um, we weren't allowed to go back to El Salvador, where the rest of the family went back for reunions. We stayed here in the States. We were very much forcibly distanced from our culture because our parents were very concerned that we would not be able to pass for white. Um, and as as horrible as that is to say, that is definitely something that, you know, it's not new to the Latine community. Um, it is definitely something that has, ever since colonialism, when uh, mestizaje was in, in, in imported by the Spanish, uh, this color of your skin and being able to pass for white has been something that has been incredibly powerful and incredibly important um, since the Spanish got here. So it was definitely something forced assimilation, especially in the United States. I don't know much about how it is in Canada, obviously, but I know in the United States, especially in any state that borders uh, Mexico, is incredibly, incredibly powerful. And um, it was very much something that I didn't realize growing up was a thing until probably around my 20s when I started realizing oh, my cousins who are coming up from El Salvador are looking at me funny because I can't speak Spanish. And then I started hearing the term no sabo kids. And I was like, wait a second, I'm one of those. What, what's wrong with me that, that I, am I not Latin enough? Am I I'm not cool enough to hang out with, with everybody? Like, because I can't speak Spanish, that's not my fault. I just wasn't taught it. I, it's not my fault. I don't know these cultural things. So I made an, an, a concerted effort in my mid twenties to decolonize myself before even the term was really even a thing. Uh, and it pissed my dad off quite a bit. And he had to, he, again, we were, we talked about how my dad is precious. <laughs> um, he actually went to therapy. We went back to therapy because of it, because he was so angry at me for what we now know as decolonizing and how he felt that it was a rejection of him as a parent that I was wanting to reconnect with my roots. Um, and he had to go back to therapy again when we recently found out we were indigenous. And that was that started all over again, too, because being indigenous in El Salvador is not a good thing. Interesting. I think that that's your your, your dad sounds like literally the sweetest human. He is. Uh, you know, in my ass, but I love him. <laughs> <laughs> and like, it feels that's not the word I want to use the the implication of what Annette kind of represents in in the story was really very direct in terms of the the way that Sochit talks about her and what Sochit questions about like you know why is my mother marrying these white men and and she's become social climbing and mm -hmm. all of these things and it becomes very evident that that's what Annette is doing she is mm -hmm. she is doing that assimilation piece and I really liked how you she's she's not a great person in the book we'll just say that but 
<laughs> she's a horrible person. Uh, but you didn't bring that piece into her villainy, mm-hmm. which yeah. I found really, really awesome because that's something I think that if another writer who was trying to write a story like this that was not from a Lesley background, mm-hmm. it could have easily been something that was turned into a negative. Mm-hmm. As opposed to being just something the reader recognizes and says, oh, that's what she's doing. Mm-hmm. And it's formed who she is as a, as a person, but that's not the reason why she's doing what she's doing yes. in the story. Yeah, and and you'll find out more about... You'll find more about, more about Annette and her motivations and everything about Sochi's childhood as as you read the novella which is not yet published um but Annette being Annette has made choices and and that's one of the things that really underpins who Annette is as a character is she has made choices she is not forced to do anything she is not in a position where uh if she doesn't do a b will happen um She's made choices, and those choices were always hers to make or not make. And I found found that incredibly important to me to make sure that, one, it was not just some misogynistic blame the mom situation, um, but also that understanding that even villains have these complicated layers to them, and not everything is as simple as being like, oh, it's just because she wanted to be a white lady. Well, no, that's not that's not why. It's because of this, and it's because she made this choice, and she made this choice because of this. And now, go, don't get me wrong, she, it, there's not a re- villain redemption story in her novella. She is a horrible human being from the start to the finish. But you get to understand what choices led her up to where she is. I'm very interested in reading that, because I found her character yeah. very compelling <laughs> from an, like, um, a clinical perspective almost mm-hmm. as I'm like, I'm like, what, what is making this woman think? Like, <laughs> why, why is she doing this? Like what? She's amazing. Like it was very well, like the, the thread mm-hmm. through the whole novel uh, was so well woven that it just, when you get to that section of the story that, you know, I'm referencing, mm-hmm. it was like, wow. Wow! <laughs> but it also doesn't seem like unreasonable. You're like, no. I mean, th- out of context, this is insanity. But then but, in context, you're like, this makes sense now. Now, exactly. It's like you kind of laid all these little breadcrumbs that kind of made the whole piece of toast mm-hmm. towards the end. And I'm curious how that's going to reflect in the next novel, which I'm hoping, please tell me, it's about Cesar. It is. Cesar is book two. Cesar is book two, and he meets his his fated mate, too. I am so excited. I found him to be one of my favorite characters throughout the whole story. He's he's like that best friend, you know? You've got... You've got the, when you've got a pair of friends, you've got the, the, the one that's the, gonna get drugged and get into a bar fight. And then you got the one that's just like, not again. All right. You know, like, and then, and then he's got to get into the fight and beat up the guy that his buddy started the fight with. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, he's like, very much that. Uh, you know, one of one of my favorite things <laughs> as I'm rereading the book, uh, whenever I reread the book, is is in fact Sal and Cesar's friendship. It's freaking hilarious because Cesar is just like my dude. Could you just not? The entire book. That's all Cesar is doing. Just could you not? Like, can we think of a better way to do this, Sal? Please, anything, nope, anything. Nope, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so Cesar is going to get his book. He's book two, and then Napoleon is book three, and then book four is all four of them. Or all oh, I can't wait! Oh, I, I'm sorry. I don't want to mess up his name. He's the the Potter. Napoleon. 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 Yeah. Napoleon. You can just I call him Old Dog. Old dog, old dog was so sweet. Like I was like grumpy dad. I loved it <laughs> so much. Like you know, he's just sitting there. He's kind of you know, he's got this look on his face. He's like, you dumb kids, <laughs> you idiots. Yep, <laughs> not my kids. I'm not gonna get involved. <laughs> you dumb kid. Yep. Just like washing your hands of the whole situation like, your problem. He pretty much. I mean, not so much because he, he loves the cheese made of it all, but Oh, he's, he's a gossip. Just like, just like, I mean, I know what's about to happen. You don't seem to know what's about to happen. I'm not going to save you from what's about to happen, but Let's see how it plays out. Continue. Uh, it's so great. So, it comes out next week. Are you excited? Are you I nervous? I am terrified. I am excited. I, I I have done all of the emotions. Like, all of them. Just all of them. Like, pick one, and I've done that. <laughs> How have you found the process of, tradi- of, of indie publishing your first book ever on uh, the Zon? So aside from like the weird things, like the, it's like, it's for me. Okay. I, I run massive tech projects for my day to day job. Uh, so like running a project like this was not necessarily hard. It's the weird little things. Like, it, the, like, like for instance, where did, where did the non tech one? Then? Okay. For instance, this is the exact same file. Why is this one red? Why is this one red? It's the little things. It's the little things that I'm just like, why? Why are you doing this? Um, so the little things like get in my way that like are frustrating. Um, and the little minor inconveniences. Aside from that, though, like it's honestly been incredibly smooth sailing. Um, I have I've been really really fortunate to have an incredibly tight circle of friends who are experienced in all manner of different sides from Ruthie, who is one of my really good friends, uh, who is really into the narrating side to also the marketing side to LM Drew, who is one of my best friends in the world to, you know, all of my, my author friends are really experienced in a lot of various different niches around the the author world so it was I was incredibly lucky to be able to have a group of friends where I'd just be like I don't know how to do x 
and they'd be like, here's the keywords you need to go search because we know you. We, you don't want us to tell you how to do it. You want to learn how to on your own because I am that person. Um, I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> so it's been incredibly lucky on that part. The the minor little inconveniences that, like, honestly, for the most part, most people are not going to notice except for me because I am a perfectionist. Um, yeah. Aside from that, it's it's been a roller coaster emotionally. But everything else has been really incredibly smooth. I expected there to be a lot more pitfalls. Well, that's Which, good. That's yeah. really good. Yeah, terrifying, but good. <laughs> it's very scary when you're standing on a cliff about to let your first child flap yes. their wings, right? Yes. Yes. Incredibly terrifying. Becca's uh, published a few of her own books. How does that feel, Becca? I guess you could probably relate. <laughs> I'm trying because I'm so far into it now that I just like wake up and I'm like, oh, it's a relief day. Okay. <laughs> like, oh, all right. Goodness. Here's here's another one, y'all. Uh, and see, I don't know either because even when I debuted as an indie last year, I'd already been published traditionally. So like, it's been ten, eleven years since I had like those first writer feelings of like nervousness and like oh my gosh is anyone gonna like me are they gonna hate me i'm the old dog in this situation i'm just like i'm here i've been here i've done it hate me um i'm just not ready to be perceived i'm ready for the book to be perceived and and hated and or loved but i'm not ready for me to be perceived in conjunction with the book like pick one (laughs) one or the other (laughs) Just have a silhouette on the back as the author picture. There you go. You know? Yeah. I thought about that. I thought about that, and then my editor told me she would kill me. So. <laughs> I, I respond well to, to threats. <laughs> I always forget okay. that's a thing. Like, oh yeah, you have to put your picture on the back of a book. It's like, but, but do I? Because I know there are a few authors out there who won't put their picture on yeah. for, for sake I of I had to. But oh yeah, it's a beautiful picture though. Thank you. Uh, yeah. No, it's big scaries. But having read the book myself, I know there's going to the it. People are gonna love it. It is a beautiful story. Absolutely gorgeous. Your ability to write imagery and create like I'm a person who when I read I I view it cinematically in my head as it's happening and it was so easy for me to visualize and and picture just what was happening in a scene as it was happening which is not something that I get to experience a lot of the time reading independent authors work sometimes it's I'm doing a lot of the mental visual building and it, it was just I found myself kind of like I'd have to stop and pause and put the book down because it was just, oh, so beautiful what I could, the way that you wrote things. And it was just so, I was like, oh my gosh, this is good. This book is so good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Uh, <laughs> so good. I think that comes with how, how I write actually is uh, anybody who's watched me on writing sprints has always commented on this is I write with my eyes closed because um, I just imagine the actual scene going on. And, like, that whole adage of, you know, I just write the incident report, it's exactly that, is I'm imagining, like, I close my eyes so I can have more connection to 
the emotion more connection to the scene that's playing out in my head and how I'm writing it. Right. That's interesting. I don't know that I could do that. Uh, I would be, I'm a, for me, I'm a big person that like, I will write something and then re-edit it 600 times before I move on to the next piece. And so I need to like watch cause I'll self edit as I'm writing. And I'm yeah, like, mm. I, <laughs> I just, I, uh, so the way I write is I fully brain, brain to paper to page for the first draft. The first draft is 100% brain to page. Um, and after that, then it's me going through and like reconnecting pieces, making sure if I said so-and-so here, that I use that same languaging here. Um, and like, like little things too, like for instance, um, in the prologue, we talk a lot about things having to count. And you'll find throughout the rest of the dialogue, as she becomes more and more in tune with herself, you start seeing that term, it counted, show up more and more. Mm -hmm. It felt deliberate in a really good way, which was awesome. It was so great. (laughs) And you mentioned Ruthie, who we love Ruthie. We had her on last season um, and narration. So can we expect an audiobook? Yeah, hopefully we're working on it right now uh so hopefully uh ruthie and corvin king are <gasps> going to be narrating dual narration yeah. you did not just say ruthie and corvin you're you mean we're gonna get a dual pov audiobook yeah i love those <laughs> those uh, are the uh, best originally originally i was only going to have it duet back and forth and then I listened to um, Haunting Adeline audio, and it's duet. And the back and forth, I was just like, oh, I am sold. I am sold. And I talked to Ruthie and Corbin, and I was like, hey, can we do a duet instead of um, duel? Just, yeah. And they were like, yeah. We can definitely do that. Can your pocketbook do that? And I was like, <laughs> I have two kidneys. I only need one. <laughs> There's a market for everything. There's a market for everything. Uh, so we're currently working on the plan for that. Oh, that's but exciting. Yes. So there's no, oh, I can't there's, wait. There's no actual date um, for when that's going to happen, but that is the plan. Nice. Oh, that's exciting. I love, I, I mean, I would listen to the, the shit out of that. Like, just, so I love, I love audiobooks. And I, I, I have only listened to a couple of duets or dual POV books. And just like, and, and like, that is Ruthie and Corbin. Excuse me while I just go like, <laughs> dr- clean my ears. <laughs> and Corbin's been working on his pronunciations. Uh, and we have a, uh, pronunciation guide that um, a professor of Nahuatl uh, has actually recorded uh, and he has been using that and we have been going back and forth as he learns to pronounce these things better uh, as well as forming new Central American male accents and we've been doing a lot of character work and things like that. Oh that's fantastic. It'll be great when it does come out. It'll be amazing. So now we usually go ahead sorry. I was just to say the plan is that they will be the narrators for the entire series. Oh, 
that's even better. I love continuation. It's great. I love continuity. I can't stand Consistency. it. Consistency. Consistency just makes my heart sing. Same. Big sing. Yes. <laughs> so good. Needs to be the same people, especially if it's a series. Mm-hmm. Be no. And and to go through all that work and to not carry it through would also feel waste yeah. like a waste a little bit. It would. You know? It would. So we usually ask our guests to give us some recommendations of what they think our readers might like or what you're currently reading that you really love and want to share. So currently um, I am not reading anything because I'm so overwhelmed with all the everythings. Uh, So I'm actually paused in reading. Um, However, the book that I'm most looking forward to coming out in the next couple months is The Sun and the Void. It is if you if you liked Obsidian Feathers, The Sun and the Void um, is basically the same thing, uh, same kind of genre of Latin fantasy. Um, phenomenal. Does, I don't think it has any spice in it though, and I think it's YA fantasy. But big looking forward to that. Um, hmm, what else am I looking forward to? Book two in the Name Bearer series, uh, the Flowers of Prophecy series is coming out. Um, uh, oh, there is actually a, a book that I really enjoyed. It was called The Boneflower Throne. Also, no spice, um, but really, really good. There's also Gods of Jade and Shadow by Sylvia Moreno Garcia. Um, uh, let's see. Um, let's see as I turn to my books we all um, have to sometimes turn to our bookshelves and be like what was what is it again yeah oh this book oh this book is so good um, where they burn books they burn people Ooh. so good oh this is so good uh, I've read this this is like my second copy because I broke the paperback book copy <laughs> So I had to get a hardback. Uh, I I have multiple copies of of certain series, just two different covers, so it's okay. (laughs) So this is a fantasy, uh, a Latin fantasy that is kind of a time hop. Uh, It's, we talk about, we meet characters that are both in the past during the conquest, as well as modern day. Very, very good. Uh, Highly recommend this one. Um, let's see, what else do I have over here? Um, I think that's all of the books that I have read, read. Uh, I have so many books in this, in this area. Ah, uh, non, it's non, nonfiction. Um, In the Language of Kings is a book that, uh, is a compilation of directly translated um aztec songs poems and stories oh that sounds lovely and it is so good and it was one of my one of the references um one of the things you'll notice in all three of the books all three of the main characters books um their individual books is each one of them will have a legend that they tell that is directly uh, a reflection of their relationship now I'm going to have to go and reread it. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many layers that 
so one of the things that I love in, in books is the being the ability to reread things and catch new things. Um, I will say this, that until all four books and all two novellas are out, there are layers to each of these books and each of these stories that you will not catch until you have read all of them. Oh, that's even better. Yeah. Even better. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So, after Obsidian Feathers comes out, mm-hmm. what is next for you? What's coming up? So, Jade Soul is um, Cesar's book. Uh, and that is hopefully going to come out basically at the same time as next year. Um, so, that's, like, because these books are so thick and they have so much uh, work that goes into them to connect them all, um, I'm aiming for once a year to have all of them out once a year uh, around the same time, March and end of March. Um, in the meantime, uh, I am going to be writing The Salt Road, which is spoiler, uh, it's Annette's journey through Miklan, which is the Aztec Deadlands. Uh, so her trek through the Deadlands. Uh, so you'll learn a lot about the Aztec afterlife. Um, and that will play a huge part in your understanding of the things that go down in Jade's soul. Oh, that's exciting. So Very that's kind of necessary. I have to finish Salt Road before Jade's soul comes out. Um, so I'm writing them in tandem. Um, and then after that, uh, the year after that is going to be um, Steel Claws, which is Nepal, it seems, is his, his girlfriend. Um, and then there is the year after that will be Dusk of the Fifth Sun. In addition to that, at the same time, a novella called Spiral Heart will be published the same time as, as Dusk of the Fifth Sun because Spiral Heart happens during the events of the last book. Okay. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. The timelines everywhere. <laughs> I love how you know you have. I love how you have all, all this planned out, and I'm like, I barely know what I'm doing tomorrow, let alone like. <laughs> oh, I, mean, I also, I also have the spinoff series planned too. I can't oh. wait. Time is a construct, people. <laughs> right. <laughs> Listen, if I had enough time, these books would come out like every six months. But like, I we also after. After the world of Obsidian Feathers, we'll visit. We'll revisit Javier. Oh yeah, I found myself going like, "Oh, I hope to see him more," and then he kind of just disappears. And I'm like, mm, <laughs> "When are we going to see him again?" That'll be you nice. We'll see Javier again. Um, Javier's wife will pay, play a big role. Oh, exciting! Very exciting. Oh, yes. I cannot wait. So I'm definitely treating all of the first three books as. Uh, origin stories of like let me show you how a badass was made yes I love that I love that I just, I powerful women badassery those two things are just perfect they're yeah. perfect in my opinion I agree so tell our listeners where they can find you if they would like to pre-order Obsidian Feathers if they want to follow your content and your journey as you publish mm-hmm. Sure. So um, I do most of like my daily posts on Instagram or not Instagram on TikTok because I am not a social media girly. I'm just not. <laughs> um, so TikTok, if you want to like find out more of like what's immediately going on, um, Instagram, Facebook, 
hive, all of the Twitters, the everything else is mostly uh, my PA taking my content and repopulating it out. So TikTok is the freshest of the fresh at the moment. Um, TikTok is capricious at best. So for the moment, it's TikTok. Um, outside of that, you can catch me on my website, which is author and cassettes. Um, you can also join my newsletter and you'll get uh, bi-weekly updates. The newsletter is interesting because I send um, every other newsletter, I send an, a recipe and every other newsletter, I send a legend from Central America. So you'll either get a recipe or a legend. Um, I try to make them either short and sweet or worth your time. Um, but everything, I can be found on everything as author and Caceres uh, because I like consistency. We talked about this. Yeah. Consistency. <laughs> and I can, I can personally judge for the newsletters. I don't normally sign up for newsletters for, for stuff because I feel like I get 800 emails a day to begin with in my day job. And your newsletters are, they're works of art. They are beautiful. <laughs> They are engaging and super interesting. And I have already like taken some of those, those recipes and like set them aside. Cause I'm like, we are going to try this when I have some time. So everybody <laughs> needs to one, go and sign up for the it. The next recipe will be a uh, cafe de olla and horchata creamer for coffee. Ooh, Ooh that sounds absolutely delicious. Mm-hmm. When I get around to it. Cause like right now I'm, I, I haven't sent a newsletter in a while because I'm up to my eyeballs. <laughs> You're publishing a novel and you got yeah. stuff to do. It's important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you again so much, Nemi, thank for you. hanging out with us and talking about your book. It was a pleasure to get to read it. I can't wait to actually get a physical copy in my hands on release day. And I just, it means a lot to us that you guys spent some time with us this afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. You guys were the first the first podcast that actually asked me and had had my back since like day one. I really appreciate all of your support and I can't wait for you to hold because the version you got wasn't even the finished product yet. The changes have been made. Ooh, ooh. Yeah. Little changes. Little changes. It's all right. It's a reason to buy it. Yes. Just more reasons to spend money. I don't <laughs> highly recommend that. <laughs> oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Demi. Have Bye. yourself a great night and I'll talk to you lovely ladies next week. Bye. Want more from the bookish bitches? Follow us on TikTok at Drinking Ink Pod Official for updates regarding our newest episodes, releases, and behind the scenes chaos, or send us an email at drinkinginkpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on all streaming platforms like Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also follow our hosts on their personal accounts located in the show notes, along with recommended reading lists and all the books we mentioned in today's episode. Stay thirsty, friends.